You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, friends, welcome back. Uh, if you've been journeying with us for uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, welcome back for week two uh, of our Advent journey here at the Peak. If you're just joining us for the first time here this morning or you're tuning in online for the first time, welcome. Uh, so uh, our church uh, is sort of smack dab in the middle of a season of Advent, which may be new for you, new for you and your family. If you are, uh, if this is new for you, uh, no sweats. For us, what Advent is, is it's the season every year, this time of year, whereby we actively anticipate the arrival of God in our lives. And so the key word there uh, is active. Key word there is active. Uh, For so many of us, maybe you came into this Advent season uh, feeling like your spirituality, your faith, your relationship with God had gone stagnant, it's gone a little stale. And so what Advent is, is it's an opportunity to start over, to start again, to not passively wait around for Jesus to show up and to speak to you, but to actively, intentionally search for Jesus to speak to you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to direct your life in the ways in which you're seeking right now. This is a wonderful opportunity that if you've been sort of someone who's been like, you know, Jesus, I really would love to feel more connected to you, but like, I'm busy. I've got a lot of things. I've got two minutes before I drop the kids off, so like, do you have a word? Um, I'm listening. It's, here we go, right now. Uh, This is an opportunity to change that, uh, to take control of your faith again, to take control of your relationship with God again, and to actively open up yourself to be changed by Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the course of the next several weeks is we're going to give you disciplines for that. If you're sitting there like, you know, how do I do that? How do I go about creating that space? Uh, Over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to get super practical. We're going to get super practical. We're going to give you four explicit practices that if we do these over the course of the next four weeks, we can experience uh, a little bit more of Jesus in a little bit more of our lives. Last week, we opened up with a practice, uh, the discipline of love. That if you want to draw close to God, if you want to sort of feel reconnected with God again, start no other place than love. The great commandment, learning to love both directions, learning to uh, love God, so it's like a vertical love, and love your neighbor, a horizontal love as well. Additionally, uh, today we're going to talk about another practice, another discipline that if we commit to, uh, we will will, uh, do our part in drawing nearer to Jesus this season, this Advent season. And today, the particular practice, the particular discipline that we're going to hone in on and dig into a little bit today is the very discipline of humility. Humility. Now, before we get started, I want to go on record and say uh, I'm not looking forward to this. I'm not looking forward to this sermon for uh, really two reasons, primarily two reasons. One is I feel like over the course of the last year and a half, I have received enough humility. (laughs) I don't know if this is the case for you, but over the course of the last 20 months or so, I feel like I've been repetitively repetitively reminded of like, "Hmm, you're not as patient as you thought you were. You're not as compassionate as you thought you were. Over and over and over again, I've had a lot of humbling exercises reminding me that I still got a lot of work to go in my faith, in my marriage, as a dad, you name it. The other reason why I'm not looking forward to this sermon very much is because I am not a naturally humble person. Uh, I have to work 
to cultivate humility in my life. Maybe that's not the case for you. It is definitely not the case for both my dad and my brother. They just ooze humility. They walk around just loving other people, thinking of other people. They're never proud. They're never arrogant. I have to work at that. I'll give you a perfect example. So a couple of months ago, we went on a, a vacation. We finally got together as a family, did like a family reunion uh, down in Florida. And uh, part of what our family does every single time we get together is we always play mini golf. Here's a picture of us. Um, and here's a picture of my daughter who's having <laughs> a wonderful time, jazzed to be there. When we reach teenage years, I just need you guys to lift up Kyle in prayer. Anyway, so we go and play mini golf. We get back home, and it's funny because so my mom, my mom ain't into that. But uh, so we get home, my mom's waiting, and then we get back, and my mom's like, "Oh my gosh, like how was it? Did you guys have fun?" This is a perfect typified example of the difference between me and my dad. So my dad immediately is like, "Yes, sweetheart, it was a great time. We enjoyed each other's company and just like the companionship and the fellowship." Meanwhile. I was still in the car counting the scorecard to see who won so that I could run in and go, loser, loser, I won. <laughs> Humility doesn't come naturally to me. Or maybe for you. Maybe for you when you heard the words uh, that Liz just read a moment ago and you heard of the incredible amount of humility that Christ displayed at so many different moments of his ministry, you see that and you go, gosh, I'm not that, but I want to be that. I'm not that, but dang, like I want to be more like that. That's my hypothesis on the Christian life. I believe every single one of you who are listening to this, either here or online, I think every single one of us there are, when you were born into this world, there were a collective set of characteristics and attributes that were naturally just like Jesus. And then there was a batch of stuff that you saw in Jesus that you're like, whoo, I'm not that, and I'm going to have to work to become that. And so if humility uh, is one of those for you, by the way, if you're sitting there like, oh, this one's not for me, then it is for you. <laughs> uh, if humility is that for you, then you're in the right place. We're going to dig into a passage that I think has a lot to teach us on this very topic. So, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me back to Philippians chapter 2, I want to encourage you to go ahead and do so. Go ahead and uh, retrieve those and have those handy. If you're watching this online, feel free to grab a smart device or whatever and go back to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Because here in Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to make a claim. I'm willing to make the argument that the Christmas event... God becoming human, God taking on flesh, I am going to make the argument that that was the single greatest act of humility the world has ever seen. Why? Let's break it down. So the first thing that we read in this passage that Paul writes for us is he writes that uh, Christ emptied himself of all divine privileges. So this is verse 7. He gave up his divine privileges privileges. Uh, scholars and theologians, they refer to this term as kenosis. That's the Greek word, kenosis. It means self-emptying, emptying yourself of privileges, of power that you used to have for the sake of something or someone else. Now, what exactly, what privileges, what powers did Jesus give up? We don't know. We don't know. We know that he maintained some of them, right? Because when he was on earth, he walked on water, he healed people, that sort of thing. 
Maybe he had the ability to like see through walls or like walk through walls and he got rid of that one. He left that one back in heaven. We don't know. We do know though. One thing that every single Christian can agree upon is that one of the divine privileges that Jesus gave up in becoming human was his omniscience, his omnipresence rather. Sorry, his omnipresence. And if you're sort of like, what's that, what's that mean? That sounds like a seminary word. Uh, omnipresence is simply the belief that God has the ability to occupy all spaces. His presence is everywhere. There's no boundaries, there's no limitations. And so for God to become human, God went from being infinitely sort of expandable to, in the words of Aladdin, itty bitty living space. Itty bitty living space. Now, if you're like, I know, that's, that's not like a big deal. I mean, it's like oppressive, but it's like not really that big of a deal. How well do you handle when your world gets smaller? When we go on vacations, all of our kids and uh, me, we all live in the, the same room for like a week. And at the beginning, I love it. I'm like, oh, this is so great. We're close. We're connecting. We actually get to like be together and things. By day four, I'm like, stop touching me. Stop breathing on me. And when did you clear your throat so much? Blah. <laughs> Additionally, let's also think about the way in which Christ entered the world, shall we? So what does the uh, verse, I think it's verse uh, 7 say? He took the humble position of a slave and he was born a human being. The way in which Christ entered the world was the most humble possible way we can imagine. Why? So let's just paint a contrary picture to how we as human beings enter into a scene. So when we as human beings enter into a scene. If we, if we feel like someone important is walking in or someone important is about to arrive, what do we do? We whip out all the bells and whistles. We make sure everybody in the universe knows that this person is coming, they're arriving, and we, so we put songs, we do different things. Uh, so, so me, this is Kyle. If I'm the son of God and I'm coming into the world, number one, I have a theme song. Additionally, I have someone who's like an announcer type. And now, coming in at 6'2", you've been waiting centuries for this. He's the Messiah, the king of the universe. He's a root from Jesse, the Lord, the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus don't do none of that. Again, let's break it down. Instead of that kind of entrance into the world, Jesus, A, is born in the middle of the night when everyone is asleep, B, to a poor, very non-influential couple. Mary didn't have, like, a strong Instagram presence where she was like, okay, everybody, so, like, guess what? We think it's happening. <laughs> We're really excited. Like, that's not happening. That's not going down. <laughs> Additionally, Jesus was born into Bethlehem, a very poorly populated area of Israel. A couple of years ago, I broke this down on Christmas Eve and found that Bethlehem during that time is about the same size as one of the top ten smallest towns in eastern North Carolina. These are the towns that you drive through on the way to the beach. You don't stop there. You just drive through them. You don't even know their names. So Jesus chooses to be born in the middle of the night 
to a very unsuspecting couple in the middle of nowhere. And when you leave here today and you go back to your neighborhood, when you drive home, you're going to see uh, some uh, families, like they've got like their blow-ups and stuff in the front yard, and they've got nativity scenes, and it always looks like this quiet, quaint, little like barn-like sort of situation. But actually, did you know that most scholars, most theologians uh, have done the research and they've found that a lot of poor farmers, instead of building stables and farms and that sort of thing, where they kept their animals was in a cave underground. This is actually uh, the grotto of the nativity where uh, scholars and theologians and historians believe Jesus was born. Underground in a cave. Friends, you don't come into the world more humble than that, more discreet than that. So the natural question that we're left asking, we're left wondering here in 2021 is, like, why? Like, (laughs) I'm not your PR specialist, Jesus, but, like, I would have had different strategies in mind. Like, what's going on? Like, why did you come in that way? You back up to verse 3, and you see why. Paul writes this. The reason why Jesus came this way, the reason why Jesus had, uh, gave this example, is because he was imitating for you the type of life you're supposed to live. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You are to be lowly as he is lowly. You are to serve as he served. So, embedded within this passage, I think, is some good news. Some good news, because especially those of us who are like, good Lord, well, that does not seem like an example I can imitate immediately. I'm going to need to practice at that. I'm going to need to do some work to get to that place. Where do I even start? Unfortunately for us, the author gives us a couple of places to start. And so today what I want to do is I want to give you three. I want to give you three. Uh, three practices, three disciplines embedded within this story, embedded within this scripture that I think if we practice, if we commit to them, if we discipline ourselves to these, you will not become humble tomorrow, but humility will become more and more and more a part of your spiritual life. Discipline number one. So um, the first practice that we see here in Philippians chapter two, that if you want to become more humble, you want to cultivate more humility in your life, number one, like Jesus, be careful about wanting to be seen. Be careful about always wanting to be seen. Be careful about living a life where you are constantly showcasing and broadcasting all the good things happening to you for everyone to see. So maybe for you, that's social media. Social media doesn't help you in this because it almost seems like every single time anything good happens, social media is like, don't forget the last thing to do is post. Share. We want to see it. And so... For some of us, that's the trap. That's the trap. Maybe for you, you're not on social media, or you don't really have much of a social media presence, but for you, you do have people in your life who you are constantly thinking about their approval. You are constantly living for their validation. So who is your audience? I think that's a question every single Christian ought to ask themselves. Who is the primary audience? Who's the target audience you live for? You're desperate for them to see what it is you're doing, see what you've become. Who is that for you? I don't think it's a matter of just living there. I don't think what Jesus is after is like, 
us need to hide all of the good things that ever happened to us for the rest of our lives. Some of you are probably sitting there like, that's not really fair because like some of the good things that happen to me when I share them, they bless other people. When I have kids or grandkids and I share those stories, like it blesses and brings joy to other people. So like, is that really what God wants? God wants me to live an ultimate secretive life? I don't think that's the case. But I do think the Christian has to seriously interrogate themselves and ask themselves this question. Is my desire to be seen a byproduct of my life or a motivator of my life? Hear the difference? Hear the difference? One is simply just think good things are happening to you. Other people are seeing them because that's just the natural way in which things work. Another is making every single decision in your life in a calculated way so that that people group back in high school who didn't like me, they can see it on Facebook and now, yes, now, I prove to them that I am whatever it is. Maybe it's a boss for you or a family member for you or a neighbor, I don't know. Who's the audience you're living for? I think uh, Proverbs has a really, really beautiful way of making this super, super simple. It's like, if you struggle with this, you don't really know what to do as far as like with the good stuff happening to you, just live by this simple rule. Instead, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth. (laughs) You want a simple rule to live by, a good general rule to live by? Let someone else praise you. Let someone else do the good talking about you instead of your own mouth. So you want to cultivate more humility in your life. Discipline one, just be careful. Be aware about constantly living a life where you're always trying to be seen by everyone or this person or this group. It's the quickest recipe for unhappiness. If you live your entire life waiting for everyone or that person or that group or whatever to validate you, to give you approval, then all of your happiness and joy in life is predicated upon whether or not, A, they saw the good thing that happened to you, and B, what they thought about it. Always dependent upon someone else. Always. Discipline number one, uh, be careful about living a life where you always want to be seen. What else? Uh, What else does Jesus' example, what else does this Christmas story have to teach us about how to cultivate uh, humility? Go back to the passage, look at verse 8. So in verse uh, 8, Paul writes this, he says, When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So when we read this, uh, the reason why God did this is because even though the sacrifice was great, even though the humility required was great, there was a great, great benefit to us, to humanity, to creation writ large. So God was willing to endure the sacrifice because God knew what it would do, what it would make possible in the long run. And that leads to the second discipline. Friends, if you want to cultivate more humility in your life, you have to be someone. The Christian has to be someone who always asks the question, who benefits from this? Before I act in this way, before I make this decision, let me just ask the question, who benefits from this? Is it only me? Is it only me? Friends, this is precisely why earlier in the passage, Paul wrote what he wrote when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. What Paul's saying here is, he's not saying you have to go out and live a life where, about, where you don't pursue anything good for you, you don't pursue any dreams, you don't pursue any goals, you don't pursue any passions. He's not saying that. He's saying, 
the Christian is the one who is constantly thinking about what they're devoting their life to, what actions they're taking, and constantly asking the question of, it can't just be me who benefits. Who benefits? I'm a visual learner, so I had to create a sort of spectrum to sort of map this out for myself. So here's what it looks like. I believe, I believe that every single one of our decisions, every single one of our actions can fall into one of these four buckets. One of these four buckets. Bucket number one, there are some decisions I can make in life that benefit me, but come at a cost to other people. So they're good for me, love it. They hurt other people. Sorry about you. Secondly, there are decisions that we make in life that benefit me, but they're neutral to you. So it's really good for me, doesn't really affect you that much, so like, whatever, it's great, woohoo, well, that's awesome. Third bucket, there are decisions we make in life that are neutral for us, neutral for you, they don't really affect you good or bad, but they are good for other people, they benefit other people. And then fourthly and finally, there are decisions you'll make in life that'll be a cost to you, require sacrifice from you, but will be beneficial to other people. I was trying to think of like an analogy uh, to illustrate my point, and the best one I could come up with was in preparation for the holidays, holiday parties, holiday parties. So some of you are going to go to some holiday parties over the course of the next several weeks. Uh, you're going to host them. And so for me, when I was thinking about the way in which I engage holiday parties, I thought of it this way. So one decision that if I made it would benefit me but come at a cost to other people is if I went to holiday parties and I ate chili. <laughs> We're going there. We're going there, get comfortable. Sixth grade, sixth grade humor, here we go. When I eat chili, so full vulnerability, full honesty, we're gonna be, when I eat chili, something happens in this situation that overpowers all of the Yankee candles that God has ever created. <laughs> now I love it, great benefit to me, a deadly cost to you if you're in the same room. Okay, next one, benefits me, neutral to you. My wife can attest to this. There have been moments when I have been dissatisfied with the lack of queso that people bring to parties, and so I will bring my own. And I will hide it behind the flowers so that no one can find it. It's of benefit to me. It's neutral to you. You didn't even know it was there. It's fine. If you discover it, I'll let you have a little bit. Third, neutral to me, benefits to others. So if ever someone asks me to bring some sort of dessert with nuts in it, I don't hate brownies with almonds in them, but I don't like go out of my way and make a beeline to go eat them. Some of you do, some of you love it, it's great. It feels to me like I'm shoving tree bark into my brownies, and so like I don't know why anyone would do that. I'm not disgusted by it, but it benefits you, it's neutral to me, who cares, whatever. Fourthly and finally, uh, this one uh, is, I found this out over Thanksgiving, one thing I can do at holiday parties that's a cost to me but benefit to you is if I volunteer to watch the children in the playroom while all of you get to enjoy the party. All of Thanksgiving, I feel like I was just recruiting the older cousins. Hey, I think my kids want to go play up in that room over there. We're going to be over here. I've thought a lot about this. I've thought a lot about this. And there might be somewhere on this um, where decisions you make that are of benefit to you and of benefit to everyone else, I think they're rare. I think they're rare. So I wanted to focus in on these four. Because I believe, friends, as Christians, I don't, well, I'll say what I don't believe. I don't believe there are instances where we are allowed 
to live in that first bucket. I don't think we're allowed to live there. I don't think the Christians are allowed to walk around the world and say, well, benefits me, sorry about you, don't care. I don't think you're allowed. I do think there's probably some instances where you're allowed to do things that benefit you and it's neutral to other people. Like, who cares? Like, that ha- that's going to happen. That's just life. But I think, friends, the sweet spot, where you and I are supposed to live, the question we're supposed to ask more often than not is the last two questions. What things can I do? What actions can I take? How can I live in such a way where the primary person benefiting from my life is not me, but other people? Can you imagine how differently your life would look if the very first question you asked, anytime you spent money, anytime you made a job change, anytime you engaged politics, if the first question you asked was not what do I want, but what does, they, what does the world, what do they need? That's the call. That's the call. If we claim to follow Jesus, if we claim to follow his example, that's who we're called to be. Which leads me to the last one. The last uh, discipline, I think, embedded in this scripture. Uh, the last one that's embedded, I think, uh, here in this retelling of Christ's incarnation. As you go back to the uh, scripture passage, I think it's in, was it verse 7? Yeah, verse 7. He says, uh, again, Jesus took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. Another translation says he's born, he took the humble position of a servant. I think immediately when you, at least when I heard this, when I read this, I heard echoes of another passage. Uh, There's another passage in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel specifically, where Jesus stumbles upon his disciples who are having an argument about who the greatest among them was. So they're fighting about who was the best. Well, like one time Jesus uh, put his arm on mine, so like obviously that means he likes me the most. (laughs) So Jesus walks up and it's like, what are you talking about? You missed it. You missed the whole point. Do you not understand that the kingdom I'm calling you to live into, the society I'm calling you to live into, is where the first become last. It's where the greatest among you is the biggest servant of all. And in so doing, Jesus gives us the third discipline. Uh, You want to cultivate more humility in your life, then you have to adopt a mindset where there is quite literally nothing. Quite literally no task that's beneath you. Not a one. If there is nothing beneath God, friend, there ain't nothing beneath you. has practical implications for every arena of your life. Maybe it's in your home with your spouse and your kids, or maybe uh, it's with your close friend circle. What this means for you is that in those relationships, the people who are closest to you, it means that you are constantly the person doing the task no one else wants to do. It means you are constantly searching out opportunities to be for others what they desperately need in the world. It means as a Christian, when we engage with our our partner or our children, we're, we're constantly asking, 
are there sacrifices I can make so that they can thrive, so that they can experience abundant life? Are there things I can do to lift them up instead of always trying to be lifted up myself? At work, same mindset. I don't care if you are entry level or if you are at the top of your company, it does not matter. When you engage your work, and I don't care if it's secular work or sacred work, it doesn't matter. What this means is every single one of us, when you go into work tomorrow, you are to be a servant of all. You are to look for opportunities all the time to serve everybody, particularly those of you who are in management positions or you have holder, sort of higher up positions. Your job is not to be served by your employees. Your job is to serve and take care of them. The Christian is the one who engages their work, and they constantly say, Jesus, wherever I'm being forced to choose between profit or people, please, by your grace, help me choose the people. Publicly, so out in the world with the strangers you don't know, the strangers you will come into contact with over the course of the next several weeks, forgive my language, but what this means is if you want to cultivate humility, you want to see no task beneath you, then that means that out publicly, you have to be the person. You have to be the one in society who gives a damn. When you see something wrong, when you see someone hurting, when you see someone struggling, sorry, you're the one who's supposed to give a damn. If you're waiting for other people, you're going to wait a long time. You're the one. Every single one of us has heard that study before. We all know the results of that altruism study that found that every single time there is a person in need placed in a situation where there were more people, the more people around them, the more responsibility that could be sort of diffused about, the less that that person actually had someone step in to help them. And guess whose job it is to help? Yours. Like which time though? Every time. This is what led Mother Teresa to say that beautiful classic quote where she said, friends, not all of us are going to go out and do great things. But daggum, it's the southern version, daggum, all of us, all of us, every single one of you, no exceptions, every single one of you can do small things with incredibly great love. I'll close here. In, uh, in a moment, uh, we're going to receive a communion together. You should have received the elements as you came in uh, to worship today. If you didn't, that's okay. Just run back and snag one uh, at other one of the stations uh, there in the back. If you're watching this online, it's okay. Uh, feel free to, uh, if you don't have juice or uh, bread um, sort of handy, feel free you can use water and bread. Just sort of have that off to the side. Uh, we'll come to that in a moment. So we're going to receive communion uh, here in a moment, but before we do so, I want to say something. I want to say something. Everything in my life, everything in my life, that I hold dear came at a cost. Everything. My marriage has come at a cost. Parenting children has come at a cost. 
this work of serving and loving people and trying to disciple people into becoming followers of Jesus. I love this work, but good gracious, it comes at a cost. Everything I love has come at a cost. And so I want to ask you a really, really important question this Advent season. When was the last time your faith costed you something? Not the two minutes that you had available to you in the carpool line. When was the last time your faith costed you something? Now, no shame. No shame. I'm guilty of it, too. As long as Jesus is providing things for me, we're good. When Jesus is offering me courage and peace and mm, like all that stuff, like it's good. Jesus and I are good. Like I'm feeling really connected. It's awesome. The moment Jesus starts asking things of me, I'm tempted at times to go, uh, can I think about it? Or can I spend some time discerning? That's a pastor word for, I don't want to answer that right now. Some of us, and I'm going to say this, and this might be hard to hear, some of us, we go through, we've gone through really intense seasons of spiritual dryness and spiritual complacency and spiritual stagnancy, and for some of us, the reason why we do that, the reason why that happens to us is not because Jesus is not showing up in your life, but it's because every single time Jesus shows up and asks something hard of you, you say no. Or you say wait. Or you say, mm, I don't know if I'd want you that badly. Again, no shame. I've done it too. But friends, it's time that we here in the church, it's time that we as followers of Jesus stop pretending that Jesus did not say things like, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. That Jesus didn't say things like, if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. Here's how I want to close. Again, you've got your communion elements. In college, uh, my college soccer coach used to do something that was kind of weird and tacky, but now I kind of like it. Um, before a really big game, before a really big game, like a conference championship game or a tournament game, what he would do is before the, the practice before is he'd have all of us stand on the sideline. So we'd all just sort of stand on the sideline of the soccer field. And he would say, this game is going to take every bit of what you got. It's going to take your whole body, all your heart, all your mind. I don't want you to step onto this field until you are fully ready to give all of it. Sometimes, like, players would sit there for a while. <laughs> it's, like, kind of awkward. Like, we'd be practicing and, like, stretching, and, like, some guy's just, like, trying to find the motivation, the gumption. I liked the practice because I think what it did was it took seriously the cost of discipleship. It took seriously the cost that is Jesus going to take care of you? Is Jesus going to love you? Is Jesus going to provide for you? Yeah. And Jesus is also going to ask a lot of you. And so communion is going to work a little bit differently today. We're going to play a song here in a moment. Um, if that is a cost you know right now you are willing to move into, what is communion, right? What is communion? Communion, every single time we celebrate it, is it's the liturgical worshipful act whereby we unite ourselves with God.
we reunite ourselves with God. And if you are ready to unite yourself with God, so much so that you're willing to follow Jesus into the lowly, humble places, I want to invite you uh, this morning to receive those elements, the body and the blood of Christ together today. And if you're not, no shame, if you're not, I want to encourage you to hold on to those elements. Take them home with you. We'll pray over them. We'll consecrate them. Take them home with you. And really begin to search the parts of your life, the parts of your heart that are still so reluctant to give yourself to this kingdom thing. And when, if you're ready, two, three days, seven days from now, receive them then. Receive them then. Because, friends, again, what I'm finding over and over and over again is that if I want Jesus to be the true Lord of my life, then that means, yes, receiving his grace and his love and his mercy. And also, offering myself in response to all that God has offered for me to be of use in God's world. up to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here this Advent season, uh, we entered into this journey with a hope and with a desire to uh, draw nearer to you, uh, to draw close to you again. And we pray uh, that as we are beginning to survey uh, the different things that might be required of us that you might provide what it is we're lacking to make that next step. Some of us are here today and pride is it. That's the thing. That's the obstacle. That's the one that just continues to hold us back from relationship with you, maybe because of our insecurities, maybe because of our past failures, maybe because of the baggage we're carrying around. Pride was the default default, uh, defense mechanism. We just sort of said, you know what? Nope. I'm going to make sure everyone sees how valuable I am. I'm going to make sure everyone sees how important I am. I'm going to make sure everyone sees how beautiful I am because this person or that group never saw it. Let's expose the lies of pride, we pray. Maybe for us, it's just a fear of what we might lose. In following you, we gain life, eternal life. We gain the world, but we also lose the things that are holding us back and holding the world back from you. So the things that you are calling us to drop, to leave behind, just as the disciples left their nets behind, show us the things that we need to leave behind because they're holding us back from you. Jesus, help us understand on a just profound personal level that the whole goal of humility is not just to think smaller, think less of ourselves, but in the words of C.S. Lewis, it's just retraining ourselves to think less about ourselves and more about you and more about the people you're trying to use us to love and serve. And so, Jesus, we offer ourselves to you this day. Come and move. Change us. Make us like you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.
Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.